Welcome to Econoday Unplugged. Each week, our expert team explains the relationship between economic announcements and market reaction. For over 25 years, Econoday has provided value for the investment industry, amassing a comprehensive, machine-readable database of global market events. Econoday provides solutions for macroeconomics, sovereign debt, agricultural commodities and historical data, all delivered by API, XML and HTML. Connect the dots with Econoday. Subscribe to the Econoday Unplugged podcast and go to www.econoday.com to follow market events. Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged. It's Tuesday the 28th of May 2019, so just a couple of days before the start of the Cricket World Cup and hooray for that. Mark Pender, I suspect practising his googly even as we speak, is stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. For those of you who haven't come across it, a googly, of course, is a certain type of cricket delivery. Okay, well, um, since we've just had all these European elections, um, we thought we'd we'd kick off with those and and have a a troll through what's been going on there. Um, On the whole, I suppose we can say the opinion polls got it kind of right. Um, We did indeed see a fairly significant swing away from the centre-left and the centre-right parties toward the at least semi-extreme ends of the political spectrum. However, that might have worried financial markets and particularly the euro. But as it turned out, the the shift wasn't quite as big as certainly some of the the more um, outlandish forecasts were suggesting. And crucially for a sort of a stability or harmony of politics across the European Union, uh, we've ended up with the European Parliament, which if we combine together all the pro-EU countries, the bloc there still has a majority. And that's going to be important going forward. It doesn't mean to say that there won't be some kind of tinkering with fiscal policy, because both the the two major parties, so the European People's Party and the Socialists and the Democrats, who have dominated the political scene uh, over the course of the last 20 years or so, they're going to have to accommodate the demands of the Greens and the Liberals. So there's probably going to be some tweaking. Yeah. Jeremy, this is Mark. I, um, just a, a question on the proportion of power that the European Parliament has in fiscal and monetary policy. That's a good question. Um, I suppose if we go back far enough, it is always seen as something of a you know, a poor man's almost EU commission. You know, they made some announcements and stuff, but effectively it was EU commission, the executive arm of the European Parliament, really, which did all the work and made the big decisions. But over time, it's got to the stage now whereby the politicians themselves have, have become much more important in the setting down of crucially things like budgets and implementing legislation. So I guess you can say now it's kind of like... A, a 50-50 split in terms of big policy decisions uh, between the European Parliament and the EU Commission itself. And it's worth mentioning on that front that, um, indeed, I think as as we record this today, we have a meeting uh, between the various EU leaders to determine just what this new EU Commission is going to look like. It's not just European elections we've had, but as a result of that, we're going to see some fairly big-name jobs across Europe coming up for negotiations. In particular, uh, the EU leaders will will be deciding who will be replacing Jean-Claude Juncker. He, of course, he's the head of the EU Commission. And it's interesting.
interesting because if the French were to get their way, then they'd install Michel Barnier. Now, Barnier, of course, has been the chief negotiator in all the Brexit talks. And were he to get that job, well, it's pretty safe to say that whoever becomes the new British prime minister, they're still going to be stuck with the withdrawal agreement as it currently stands as drawn up between uh, current PM Mrs May and the EU Commission itself. We're also going to see uh, negotiations over the new European Council president and particularly of interest for financial markets, who's going to replace the European Central Bank chief Mario Draghi. So there's a lot, and this, of course, is going to be, have to be voted on the European Parliament. So Parliament itself, in you know, various shapes and forms, is going to have a pretty big say about what happens. And who are the candidates here? Do they have traditional, prudent, uh, fiscal, uh, uh, monetary, uh, uh, res- you know, a sense of responsibility that way? Are there other people who are newcomers? I mean, what's the political or the policy leeway that's possible? Well, it depends what this is. This is, uh, to be honest, that's a, a great question, and that's the one which what comes out of this is is going to is going to shape really what happens to EU Commission. The question mark at the moment is really the fundamental one: is how much of the European Parliament uh, election results is going to be taken on board by the EU leaders? Essentially, what we're really saying has been a clearly marked vote against you know the old establishment bloc and a shift towards more liberalism towards more green and green policies and are we going to see whoever gets the big jobs you know taking account of how the voting pattern went now to be honest it's not it's not clear who's going to get any of these jobs at the moment for a few names who are sort of at the forefront of the papers but really it's going to be a case of negotiating between all the various leaders and come out with some kind of compromises so so these people are technocrats who they're considering there's no charismatic uh, personality with a unique uh economic viewpoint anything like that i don't not really think so i mean when we get of course when we get down to i suppose for financial markets perhaps the most important job of all the you know the replacement for mario draghi at the european central bank then yes we're going to see there someone who clearly has a very good background in terms of economics in terms of politics and in terms of you know economic and financial stability and i suppose looking around there at the moment um i suppose uh, one of the certainly the the main candidates is the bank of finland governor Olli rain who certainly supported by some people and that would be an interesting recall because he's one of these guys who is quite interested in having a well something of a, a, a significant shake-up of the way ecb policy is structured and possibly even having a look at this two percent or near two percent inflation target so now what comes at what you know the spin-off from these elections really could have fundamental implications for what happens to you know not just fiscal but monetary policy over the course of the next few years well, I remember the Finns during the Greek uh, uh, controversy. They seem to be very conservative. Is that a generalization? I mean, uh... um, possibly a bit conservative. I think at the moment, I mean, there's again, there's this this battle going on at the moment um, within Europe as to how the likes of Greece should have been treated. Now, one of the big winners, of course, coming out of the Euro elections um, was the very much anti-establishment Northern League, or they call themselves the League now, in Italy under uh, Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini. Now, Salvini's current push is to come out and, or he's already told the EU Commission that when push comes to shove, he's not worried about EU fiscal fiscal constraints, the so-called growth and stability pact. If he thinks it's necessary to inflate the Italian budget deficit, 
um, in order to reduce unemployment. He's going to come out and do exactly that. And indeed, there's um, some bits and pieces in the press at the moment suggesting that the European Commission is planning to penalise Italy um, under its excessive budget uh, deficit procedures and possibly introduce sanctions as early as, uh, early, as, early as June. Now, if that happens, that's going to really start putting the cat among pigeons because you know, having seen you know, those parties who really stand for dis- fiscal discipline getting something the proverbial kick up the backside, Italy could find perhaps more support from other countries than they've seen in the past. So politics is going to be, you know, quite fragile, I think, notwithstanding these results at the weekend. So is that a good handle for the uh, viewer to... uh to look at Italy to see how policy is shaping if you're getting I think, people. I think it's, I mean, it's a good question. I think it's, it's certainly worth it. I and mean, it's got to be said that, you know, Italy saw one of the biggest shifts to the sort of the right wing and certainly the, you know, the nationalist and anti-establishment wing that we've seen right across Europe. So to that extent, it probably gives a, you know, a misleading, strong idea of just how things are gone. Nonetheless, it's going to be particularly interesting to see how other countries and other members of the sort of EU Commission actually respond to yeah, to what Italy are calling for. Oh. oh, Jeremy, I have a question about the IMF, and this has to do with Brexit. Um, I'm trying to figure out, going through this different scenarios on Brexit, has the IMF done anything on this, uh, uh, or, or an institution uh, uh, such as that, on, on what the actual uh, immediate risks are for a, a Brexit uh, no deal. Well, Brexit. the IM, the IMF essentially, I think, has come out along the same sort of lines as the likes of EU Commission, uh, and they've made warning noises to the effect that you know a Brexit without a trade deal is not a good idea. You know, I think if you go through the numbers, essentially, if I remember rightly, it's about 13%, 1-3% of UK GDP is directly the result of um, exports going into uh, the, the European Union. So anything which uh, upsets that flow is going to be a negative. And yes, while it's true to talk about, well, if we pull out, we got the opportunity to arrange new trade deals of the likes of the States or India or Australia, whoever it may oh. be, they take years to put into place. So it's, and, it's, it's empirically unknown what the effects of a no-deal Brexit are. It's exact, that, that is exactly it. Um, and I suppose while we're on Brexit, it's worthwhile just just touching on what these EU results mean for Brexit itself. Um, I suppose quickly we should just rewind back to next week first, and I expect most people have seen, but just in case anyone lives in a hole out there, um, UK Prime Minister Theresa May announced that she would be standing down as a Tory party leader as of Friday the 7th of June. To be honest, I mean, she announced this last week, but had she not said that, given how badly the UK government performed in in these Euro elections, then should you know should have had to announce it on Monday anyway. But anyway, that means then we face a Tory Party leadership challenge, which is expected to run through probably to be completed by the end of June. At the moment, I think there's ten or even eleven candidates who have put their names into the hat, and that will be whittled down to a final two and eventually a choice of of, of who, whoever becomes the you know the final leader, and that leader should then become the next Prime Minister. Now, what's that Prime Minister going to face? Well. The, Bre- the uh, European election results themselves left, as we've mentioned, uh, are still pro-EU, 
um, European Parliament. So, so far, so good. But it's gone awful lot and it's plate to sort out. But in terms of sorting out you know, new coalitions to make sure uh, we do indeed have this pro-EU side, the smaller countries have got to get in, smaller uh, parties have got to get involved with the bigger ones. And um, But we almost certainly now got a stage whereby there's so much on their plate that the last thing they're going to want to do is to change the withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU already agreed. So the new prime minister is going to face exactly the same problem there. Now, in terms of the UK results, what we saw um, was that the Brexit party, which essentially just stands for Brexit and not really much else, was easily the, the largest vote share. They got 34% of the UK vote. But a bit like the European Parliament, if you add together all the, all the parties which stand for either at least having a second re referendum or indeed staying within the EU, they've got just over 40% of the vote. But, but, but Jeremy, that's the thing. There's such clarity with the Brexit, right? You know what you're voting for. With these other ones, is there going to be, I know there's a remain, is there a remain party? I mean, are there going to be, uh, a, you know, a, a, coal, a, a coalition or a, well, this, a well, see, this is this is the problem. There is a Remain Party. In fact, there are the Greens, the Remain Party, there's a number, and indeed the Labour Party, effectively, were all kind of running on a, you know, a pro-EU ticket, but they were doing it individually. So really to try and, if you're trying to judge you know, what these results actually mean for, do we want to you know, follow Brexit or do we want to stay in the European Union, you've really got to do the maths now together, you know, the sum of the votes for those parties who are still pro-EU. And that's where this kind of 40% type figure comes from so but i think yeah allowing for errors in the numbers and stuff it still kind of suggests that the uk is split pretty well down the middle in terms of those people who want to leave the eu and those people who want to stay but, in it but jeremy isn't it kind of an academic question to ask how many people want to remain because that vote has already been taken right it, 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 it has been taken but it may be taken again um, as we currently stand, say the new, let's assume we got the new prime minister in now. Well, what's he facing? Or he, or, I say he. What's he or she facing? He or she is facing a British Parliament, which supposedly is supposed to be delivering Brexit by the end of October. However, as things stood when they were last voted upon, of all the options which were put to British Parliament, nothing had a majority. Now, there was no majorities. Well, the one thing which did not have a majority, well, at least to vote against, was that the Parliament does definitely not want to leave the European Union without some kind of a trade deal. Now, that's about the only thing you can hang your hat on at the moment. So there's those Brexiteers like possibly uh, Boris Johnson, who is the leading candidate or the bookies favourite to take over Theresa May's job. He's intimated that he wants Brexit. And if necessary, push comes to shove, he'll leave without a trade deal regardless. However, he's got to get that through the UK Parliament. And UK Parliament, unless everyone's changed their minds, are not going to vote for a no deal Brexit. So what would so, they do? They would push a new Well, uh, they're pushing. Well, what would happen would be, what do you do? Parliament's in kind of a logjam. So there's two things you can do, really. What, well, yes, certainly they can sort of extend the blooming deadline yet again. Or they'll simply go back, right, Parliament can't decide. So we're going to have to have either a second referendum or there's going to have to be a general election. That would be the equivalent of a, a referendum. But if they do that, then Brexit, well, there is no Brexit party right now. Well, this is the problem. Even if, you, <laughs> even if you have a general election, it's not just a case of, let's say, Labour stands for e stay in the EU and the Tories stand for you know, leaving the EU. Both the individual parties are split down the middle as well. So I think really the only way you can find out if things have changed over the course of the last three years since the first you know, Brexit referendum back in 2016 is to have a second referendum. But currently, Parliament says it doesn't want to do it. 
But at some and, point, something is going to have to change. And so what does the investor do? Just pile their pounds into their mattress and, and take well, cover? Well, I'll tell you what. I mean, the investor is interested in looking at the way the pounds reacted. And I think there's a lot of people, you know, dealers, who are simply scratching their head. We did see sterling have a relatively poor time over the last couple of weeks. And that was really because there was this growing sense that Theresa May, who, yes, she's pro-Brexit, but she's very much a soft Brexit who wants a trade deal. So it was seen by financial markets as being relatively a good thing. You know, speculation was growing that she was about to stand down. And the worry was if she went, it could be a hardline Brexiteer coming in. And that certainly troubled the pound. We saw, so we, we talked before about our benchmark, you know, what's, what determines sentiment towards um, Brexit and so on, sterling euro. And sterling fell, what, about two to three cents against the euro. Um, it stabilised and really hasn't done that much since we had these parliamentary election results. And I think it really is that people simply have no idea still as to what's finally going to happen. Yes, we've got a new Tory party leader, a new PM coming in at some point, but the fundamental issues surrounding the whole process are exactly the same now as they were before. Well, you know, that's interesting, Jeremy, because uncertainty is traditionally a negative for an asset, financial asset. Yep. And maybe we're, you, you might, we, not, we might not be seeing it in Europe, but certainly there's money coming into U.S. Treasuries. And maybe that's an uncertainty play in, to a degree. Uh, regarding these complete unknowns coming out of out of Europe. I think it's right. And to be honest, I mean, looking at what's you know, the nexus of exchange rates at the moment, perhaps one of the slightly surprising things to me is that the dollar isn't doing rather better than it is because you've got the UK, which is just plagued by this massive Brexit uncertainty. And mm -hmm. anyone who says they know what's going to happen, they, they're lying because they don't. And now you've got the European Parliament elections, which is kind of, I won't say it's opened up a can of worms for European politics, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's going to lead to some kind of changes and people aren't sure what's going to happen. So purely from that angle, I'd have thought that perhaps you know, the dollar could have been a bit stronger. Well, maybe that's being offset by the widening government uh, deficits and the increasing amount of treasury issuance. So that might Maybe, be. Or, or perhaps it says something about people starting to think, well, hang about, perhaps the US is beginning to slow, the Fed's going to cut. It's I, true. I yeah. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I'd say to a lot going on. I've been prattling on. Is there anything from um, the state side which you think we should be talking about? No, I'm just in in shock and awe watching over here across the Atlantic of what's going on over there. And uh, uh, it's uh, amazing to me. And uh, it reminds me, though, that this was developing in Europe before it, it came across uh, into the 2016 election here. It was something very close together, but there was a little bit of a uh, that Brexit thing was the first shot across the bow of this, you know, change, uh, the secular change in economic right. balance, you know. It's got to be said, there are some very sort of learned political uh, people over here who know much more about it than I do, who really are calling what they're seeing now as being not just as you know, a short term knee jerk reaction, but beginning of a, a fundamental change in the way politics works, certainly in the UK and possibly you know, across Europe as well. So maybe case they watch this space, but it's going to be a pretty big space to watch, I think, over mm. coming months, quarters and even years. Mm. Okay. Um, there's anything else I suppose just quickly mentioned. There's not much central bank stuff's a bit thin on the ground this week, but we do have a Bank of Canada meeting tomorrow where very much expectations are for no change in the the overnight target rate at 1.75%. And that's going to reflect what a very strong April employment report and probably decent March GDP on Friday after poor figures at the beginning of the quarter. 
Okay. Um, well, I think that's probably it then. So on behalf of Mark and myself, as always, thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to keep up to date with latest movers and shakers in the world of economic data and events via Conaday's global economic calendar. Enjoy the cricket and we'll be back next week. Bye for now. In response to regulatory requirements under MIFID 2, Econoday has launched the first and only third-party sovereign debt auction database that provides pre- and post-trade transparency. Our machine-readable database tracks historical and immediate auction data of 10 countries, averaging roughly 1.7 trillion euros spread over 700 auctions each year. Our specialists cover cross-country comparisons of rates, spreads, coverage and volumes in trading decisions. Go to www.econoday.com and follow at Econoday on Twitter to learn more.